you know, the soap opera is dead in the water. Like it is dying out. Mm. Like they're almost all gone. I think the only ones that are left are basically the bold and the beautiful and young and the restless and like maybe one other, but it, it died. This is the call to action that we should be listening to. Not global warming, not, you know, the endangered (laughs) seal cup or whatever. (laughs) Save the soaps. that the general director of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam is named Taco Dibbits. His name is Taco Dibbits. He's very handsome, a very handsome man with the best name of all time. Hi, I'm Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where I dress for the job I want, which means sourcing a pair of size 10 glow-in-the-dark bowling shoes and matching epaulettes. Because I can, and because I'm worth it. That's right, every episode, I invite a fantastic LGBTQIA plus guest on to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. Why? Because we like retribution. It's the May 2-4 weekend coming up in Canada. A holiday, like most things, with uh, British colonial roots, which we will interpret in our own way. In Canada, it's kind of traditionally seen as the start of the summer season, sort of. You have a big barbecue, there are fireworks, that sort of thing. This is, of course, when the world was a physical place and not sort of a hypothetical thesis as it has become. When I was a teenager, it's also the weekend when my older brother would have a massive party and me and some of my friends would go and just kind of like orbit around the periphery of said party without actually participating and then just find somewhere where we could privately drink Mike's Hard Lemonade and argue about which Dawson's Creek character we were most like. And by the way, I am a Joey with a Pacey rising. Anyway, I know there is obviously, as you may know, quite a lot going on in the world right now. So I hope that today's episode can give you a little break from all of that, help you escape for just a little bit of time with some of our patented candy-coated queer rage. Now, on to today's show. Today is episode 16, and our guest is Trana Winter. Yes, Trana Winter, comedy legend, glamour legend, podcast legend, chanteuse, Trana really does a little bit of everything, and she does it all so well. I was really grateful to have Trana on the show. She's very funny. We laughed back through her queer catalog origin story, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So a little more about Trana. Trana made her comedy debut at an open mic in Montreal, Humble Origins, and has gone on to perform at festivals, including Pride Toronto and the Montreal Sketch Fest. Trana is also one of the hosts with Thomas LeBlanc of Chosen Family, a CBC podcast that celebrates the importance of friendship, resistance, and community at the intersection of art, gender, and sexuality. And if that sounds too serious, don't worry, it's super funny. They've had amazing guests in the past, including Jen Kirkman, John Cameron Mitchell, Bowen Yang, Linda Perry, 
etc., etc. Trana has been profiled in The Daily Front Row, which is New York City's official Fashion Week magazine. <laughs> no big deal. The UK's Daily Telegraph, the Journal de Montreal, La Presse, Le Devoir, and the Montreal Gazette, which named her one of the city's 20 hottest Montrealers. I'll say understatement. She's also been a featured guest on Sandra Bernhard's Sirius XM show Sandyland, which has hosted such legendary guests as Bette Midler, yes, from our theme song, Gloria Steinem, and Sarah Jessica Parker, aka SJP, to name only a few. In fact, Sandra Bernhard described our Trena Winter as, quote, a candle in the window on a cold, dark winter's night. Can you do better than that? I have been described as a mediocre driver who wears too much blue. So, you know, I was lucky to talk to Trana for a variety of reasons, her set of citations being one of them. Trana also has a brand new album called Safe From Your Affection, not mine, released March 31st. It's a beautiful album. You can hear it uh, anywhere you can stream music, so I encourage you to do so. We talk about it in the interview. Trana is also a great example of a stan, a diehard, a super fan. What Trana likes, Trana loves, and we get to hear about so many of those things in this episode. She was also a very early and very vocal supporter of You Made Me Queer, which I'm so grateful for because I legitimately am a real fan of hers. So this is a, a fun, wacky one, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So enough ribble-rabble. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the fashion-forward, glamorous, ethereal, effortless Trana Winter. Speaking of uh, big arrivals, you're dropping stuff left, right, and center these days. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no big deal. Just a hot album. Just a sort of Zodiac-inspired YouTube read for extra. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's weird. I don't think anything ever is exactly what it looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I'm very flattered. I think I have a very hard time taking a compliment. And mm -hmm. I don't know. It never feels like enough. It never feels like I'm doing enough. You know what I mean? Okay. Like you, you need to be producing more. Not really, because I'm also very lazy. Like <laughs> I definitely have this duality, you yeah. know, like truly my dream is just to be a creature of leisure. You know what I mean? Like oh, as yes. much as I love the work that I do, like if I could really live a life where I didn't have to work at all ever, I would take it. <laughs> um, I guess it's more just like... Because I'm I'm still struggling, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, like, I'm mm -hmm. still hustling. I'm still not at a place yet where anything feels solidified. So when I hear someone say, like, oh, my God, you've got so much going on. This is great. It doesn't feel like that for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course, of course. Even though I'm very, I'm very grateful for the things that I do get to do. But I guess because I still don't feel like, again, anything is solidified. I'm still like in hustle, survival mode. So for me, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, and I'm sure as artists, you know, even even the leisure artists among us who would like to just be sitting by, you know, a pool in a 
I was trying to think of somewhere tropical, and I almost said Orlando. As my <laughs> oh my god, the worst place oh, in no. the world. Keep, don't get off that plane. Keep going. St. Tropez, how about that? That's much better. Yes. But I think there is that pressure. It's when you have that seed in you, that creative seed that wants to make things, that drive doesn't go away. No, I know. And I, I would love, like... For me, like, it's more just to do those things without any kind of pressure. Yeah. To do them at my own pace, on my own timeline, in the way that I want to, without any pressure. How nice. That would be the dream. And then you just, Beyonce or Taylor, or I guess that's a lot of people these days, just drop that album straight out of the sky when you're good and ready. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Dates be damned. So, but now that this stuff is out... Do you have a moment to breathe at least? Yeah, I guess. I mean, like, it's such a weird time, you know? Like, I have so... Technically, I have so much time on my hands. Sure, yeah. But after these last 14 months, like, I don't feel relaxed. I don't feel rested. I don't feel like I have gotten to breathe, even though I have spent a lot of time doing nothing. It's it's time spent doing nothing, but there's always this stress running in the background. So it's never relaxing. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, it's weird because we're going to go back, knock on wood, out <laughs> of this, back into the world. And I think for some people, it's going to be like, let's make up for lost time. But yeah. I feel the same as you were. I don't feel like I'm re- recharging right now. I don't know. I don't. And I think for me too, is that like even going into this like I was already pretty burned out but I I haven't recouped you know what I mean I I don't I have not re-energized yeah this would have been the perfect time but it's just been so stressful and and again it's not to sound ungrateful because I truly am grateful but you know like like I've still been working this whole time yeah not performing but doing other things and performing is my great love and that's what I love to do more than anything and I think that's what gives my life this electrical charge that allows me to do all the other stuff that's a bit maybe less exciting or Mm -hmm. maybe less fulfilling for me but I don't have that you know so I'm like doing what would normally be side projects as the main projects and is this is are we not like we're not this is not part of the podcast oh this is all part of it this is gold yeah we want raw, unfiltered, administrative. <laughs> I want to hear your errands. I want to know what's in the washing machine. <laughs> but anyway, all to say is that, like, I still feel like there's this pressure on me. You know, like, I still have deadlines. And that's been the hardest part, you know? Yeah. Like, there's still people counting on me for certain things. And I just, like, I've had such a hard time dealing with that pressure because I just, I'm not, I don't want to be productive right now. Yeah. And it feels like everything is out of our, I was talking to someone about this yesterday day so much is out of our control so this sort of displaced revenge where it's like what can i exert control over oh i'm gonna refuse to like send this email or just some weird act of self-sabotage hey oh my god i mean i never thought about it that way but that's what i've been doing (laughs) i mean for this whole time yeah yeah i never thought about it that way but i guess it is me trying to exert some sort of control i mean i i know the ways that i sabotage myself i never thought about those smaller things as being that but it is well i'll tell i've stolen that and from actually a podcast i listened to about cults because a lot of cult leaders start their cults because of incidents of displaced revenge Mm. isn't that weird that is really weird so i guess if you take anything from today don't start a cult trana (laughs) i mean i hadn't thought about starting one i'm very fascinated by cults i remember in college i took this class on cults and i sadly don't remember much but i (laughs) I do remember just being so fascinated. Yeah, I think for me, it's like 
It's watching very uh, sensible people get sucked in, and I'm fascinated by what. I don't know if they're sensible. (laughs) You're. I'm giving them too much credit. (laughs) I mean, it is a question that I ask myself: like, what makes someone the kind of person that would fall for that? Yeah. And what makes someone the kind of person that wouldn't? Do you think you would? I would not ever. Too smart. It's not that I'm too smart. Maybe I'm too skeptical. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe anything. Okay, that that's going to save you. And as soon as anyone approaches me in any way that feels like they're trying to sell me something or convince me of something, the walls are immediately <laughs> up. There's not even a chance you're getting through. There is not a there's nothing you can say. Do you know what? I'm the same. I'm the same and as soon as you ask me to give you money for something, I am out the door. <laughs> so I would never anything where it's like just pay for whatever, gone. Gone, me too. Is there a coupon? Me too. Like I I also like I feel bad like when a telemarketer calls me. I know how hard that job is, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I always now I kind of do this horrible thing where I'm just like I'm so sorry now's not a good time. Can you call back tomorrow? And they call back but then I don't answer anymore. <laughs> and then you ghost them. <laughs> yeah, basically. But I feel bad but I'm like but I know myself and there's not a chance that I'm going to take whatever you're selling no matter what sort of argument you present to me. Ironically though, like I am such a diehard fan of certain artists where I mean I wouldn't say that I blindly follow them but like you know I will drop $500 to see Barbra Streisand in concert without thinking twice about it. You know what I mean? So that you are a little susceptible. A little bit. So maybe this is the perfect transition because, see, now we're savvy adults, Trana. But <laughs> when we were young, back in days of yore, we were naive. And that is the perfect time for the powers of queerness to prey upon us because we just didn't know you know I we know. were children yes of, of decades ago when science was in its early stages <laughs> and we didn't know the things that were making us queer for example now we know that watching any episodes of trading spaces or what not to wear <laughs> will make you queer but we didn't know at the time right i mean hildy santo tomas's um hay wall <laughs> definitely made me queer hildy santo tomas Period. Just saying the name is like an incantation. It really is. I fucking loved her her brown hair with the little flip at the bottom. She always wore like mules and a skinny jean and was just doing the most outrageous design shit. But I loved her personality. Like I was so drawn to her. Oh God, of course. I would watch that show all day. And I forget his name. I want to say Fred, but there was a smaller man who would always end up throwing like a lobster net on the wall. Yeah, like... Like he also incorporated a lot of roosters and hens and gingham into the design. There was a lot. See, this is baked into our brains and partly the reason why we are the big, beautiful, queer monsters we are today. But that is why you're here, Trana, because I'm giving you a gift. I'm giving you an international platform to point the finger of blame at who and or what Trana Winter made you queer. Okay, first of all, you have no idea how much I've been looking forward to this. <gasps> Me too. I've listened to every episode of your podcast. Get I out. love it so much. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with you. You are just so charming and smart and funny. Just such a warm presence. Like, <sighs> I've literally been dreaming of this moment. Okay. I was even going to message you and be like, can we do it sooner? Because 
because I can't wait. Oh my god, I'm so <laughs> even if you were lying, I have this recorded, and this is this is my moment now. No, I I would not lie about that. Honestly, the feeling is mutual. The feeling. I'm a longtime fan of Chosen Family. Your episode with Bowen Yang most recently was a plus. Thank you. But no notes. Perfect. But I'm I'm telling you this because I've been thinking about this question and I'm, <laughs> I've been taking the assignment way too seriously, I'm sure. Punctual and studious. <laughs> I'm blushing, please, as you were. <laughs> I, it's hard to answer because there are so many things. And for me, being queer is so much more about taste and sensibility than mm-hmm. it is about sexuality for me. Mm-hmm. And there have just been so many, I mean, even you just mentioning spaces like I never thought about it but yeah <laughs> Hildy and that show also made me queer Tamagotchi's made me queer oh Power Rangers God. made me queer like there's a million things but I, I've narrowed it down to what I think are the three most foundational okay I and I'm sad we're going right past Tamagotchi's but I guess I'll just have to book you again I mean I think Tamagotchi's really brought out like my maternal instincts <laughs> yes, you know me trying too. to keep that sweet little electronic baby alive <laughs> yeah, before we had plants we had tamagotchis exactly and i mean the colors of the tamagotchis were so flamboyant oh, yes. you know like such so beautifully packaged yes. you know beautiful packaging in general is a big reason why i'm queer mm-hmm. and it was like also a bit of a piece of jewelry yeah exactly wore it with the right outfit totally totally gorgeous so for me it really starts and maybe this is such a cliche and i'm sorry if it's so predictable <laughs> but it, it really does start Start with the Wizard of Oz for me. Oh, thank God. But but very specifically, the Wicked Witch, and even more specifically, is the scene where we first see her, where she appears in this explosion of red smoke. And the sort of commotion that goes on around this explosion and the sounds that are happening and the the camera shot where this red smoke blows across the screen and you see her disgruntled face. It was transformative. I was only a year and a half. I was, I was just like going to say, months, are you, you know. serious? I'm serious. It was the first movie that I saw and I wasn't scared of the witch. I immediately felt an affinity for her. Oh, that's interesting. To this day. And I, I watched The Wizard of Oz like at least once a year. Uh-huh. And I kid you not, like that scene makes me emotional every time I see it because to me it is divine. So what do you think it was about the Wicked Witch that spoke to you as a little 18-month-old? I mean, obviously, I don't have memories of, of <laughs> that first viewing. I'll allow that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I do remember watching it, like, when I was, like, three. And for Halloween, when I was three years old and I was, I was in preschool... I dressed up as the Wicked Witch of the West. I still vividly remember the costume. My my godmother made it for me. Yes. And my mom told me the story of bringing me to preschool that Halloween day. And all the other kids were like dressed as like clowns and princesses (laughs) and cowboys and what have you. Everyone was dressed in these like bright colors and pastels. And there was me at three years old, like head to toe black, a green face. (laughs) And I was just like, my God, like I was so fucking cool and I didn't even know it. So, so not basic, not for a moment. No, but I do, I don't, it's hard to articulate, but I think that what I responded to was her sort of gravitas and 
there is something for me that I still feel this way. There's just something so glamorous about her. Yes. You know, like that is a fucking entrance. <laughs> and as like a diehard pop music fan, you know, when you look at a Madonna concert or a Kylie Minogue concert or Cher, an entrance is so important. Mm-hmm. An entrance has to carry weight and feel momentous. And I think that that Wicked Witch first appearance is all of that. And it really set the foundation for everything that I was going to love moving forward. Yes, yeah, she nails it. And I think in those, you're absolutely right, in films like specifically that film, the villain too, the, I mean, nine times out of 10, the villain outshines... I don't know what you'd call the good witch. She's, you know, like the fairy godmother type character. I mean, she has her glamour too. Like I wouldn't mind traveling around in that bubble, you know? And it's pretty cute. (laughs) But it's the sort of the isolation of the villain that is very queer for me in a sort of like, yeah, they're they're the underdog. I root for them too. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, obviously I didn't feel that way when I was three because that wasn't my experience yet. But I think that, you know, moving into kindergarten and entering the school world where I was, you know, like the sort of target for, you know, so much. I definitely related to that. But fundamentally for me, I do think it it really comes back and always comes back to the glamour of the witch. Like Mm -hmm. her dress is couture, like it's gorgeous. And actually something that felt really validating to me like many, many, many years later was when I was reading John Waters' memoir, Role Models. Yeah. And he, there's a whole chapter on the witch and Margaret Hamilton who plays her. And he sort of imagines that the Wicked Witch's dress was like designed by Ray Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons. <laughs> and like, you can imagine that because it's so beautiful. Yeah. Like I would kill for that dress. Like it looks looks amazing like it is it's stunning and she has these like Barbara Streisand hands that are so elegant and there is a real elegance to her that's really interesting she's sort of the grown-up one whereas the good witch is kind of like a doll sort of a bit infantile in some ways so yeah you you had a maturity that was uh beyond your years I think so which (laughs) I apparently being an old soul means you're a deeply traumatized person so I don't think it's such a good thing I please get in line welcome to the club (laughs) but yeah I just I don't know like it it was truly just so foundational to me and again it's really that specific scene i think it's one of i think it's the best 10 seconds in film history for me anyway it's iconic and i will say for our listeners who unfortunately cannot see what trana is wearing but trana has this gorgeous oh my god of, it's true i didn't yeah. even think that i look like the witch right oh come now. on trana 100 is like channeling uh wicked witch vibes in this gorgeous totally black I, ruffled number yeah i didn't even realize like, i swear it wasn't intentional <laughs> but but that's how there's the proof that's right it's baked in that this influence is so part of my dna your story checks out so far so far yeah. so good <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because that was not a movie I watched a lot in childhood and I make it kicked off my own show, but I don't think I've ever seen the full thing in its entirety. That, I don't even, I, I'm speechless. I'm so sorry. I'm offended. <laughs> and we're done here. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay. I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to promise to you. But if- I don't know what it would mean to watch it now for the first time. Yeah. I don't know if it can enrapture you the way that it does when you're a kid, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm still enraptured by it to this day. Mm-hmm. It, it really, 
I mean, I told you that like watching that scene makes me emotional. Dorothy, Judy Garland singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow devastates me every single time. The movie does dazzle me to this day as if I'm watching it for the first time. But I'm sure that a lot of that has to do with this connection that was made so early on. Of course, right? But I guess because in the cultural consciousness, it was I was definitely aware of it always. And in the visuals really stick out in my mind. So you know what, I'll give it a whirl. But I I mean, it's it's obviously hard for me to be objective. But I do think that it is a brilliantly made film. You know what I mean? Like, whether you have a personal connection to it or not, like, I think it's objectively a phenomenal film. And to think of the time that they made it, and I don't even understand oh my God, I know, how right? they pulled off all of the effects that are in that movie. Oh yeah, huge. The scope for its time, and there was no CG anything. Anything. Yeah. And but and surprisingly, like the the twister scene like looks very fucking believable. Yes. Honestly. Yeah, I agree. Were there any Halloween costumes? in sort of the legacy afterwards. Did you ever revisit Wizard of Oz? Well, actually, so I was the Wicked Witch when I was three. Mm-hmm. When I was two, I was the Tin Man. <laughs> oh, please, photos, please. <laughs> There's surprisingly no photos of the Tin Man costume, but there are photos of the witch costume. Um, but oh, I, I never revisited it. I do also remember when I was a kid, I had these ruby slippers that were like a kid's toy and they were that like kind of plastic that um you know those sandals that are made of that have like glitter they're like transparent oh like gel jelly yeah jellies yeah yeah Yeah. so the ruby slippers that i had when i was a kid were made from that same material and i can still remember the smell oh yes yes that that rubbery sort of yeah it's a bit sweet yeah exactly so i i had those shoes and i love those shoes okay so that's a pretty good i mean what you presented me so far of course you're a queer person of course of course but i think i mean i know we're, we're pointing the finger at blame and as yeah. well we should but <laughs> i do think that like i don't know i think there were i think i heard another one of your guests um say this but i identified because i think that for me like all of these moments and all of the things that made me queer like i think it was more that they were just they were moments of recognition yes you know what i mean like i really for me like my queerness was very innate and very pronounced from very from i mean from day one yeah yeah absolutely i mean it is it is funny hey the way we even as little children and it was the same for me respond to certain things we are able to i don't know if it's appreciate but to notice the codes written into some of these things yeah and what i think is like one of the phenomenons that really fascinates me is that for many of us like we were the only queer kid in our grade you know a lot of us were in small towns or in suburbs we were in, in arts school and you know like when i look at all of my queer friends that are in my life now we did not know each other when we were kids but we have so we had so many of the same obsessions yes it's just so funny that all of us were in our little isolated corners but we were all gravitating towards so many of the same things that it's almost like these films and 
artists are these like pied pipers, you know, just like uh-huh. calling to us. And we heard the call. You could not have picked a better image. Yes, we were children. There there was some sort of a leadership figure who like siren called us. Yeah. And uh, and off we went. It was, a, it's exactly that. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's what The Wizard of Oz was for me. It really was a siren call because I think that I mean, so many kids did watch that movie when they were young and they're straight as fuck. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, totally. But for me, being a queer kid, responding to that siren's call, like it, it just lit me up. Yeah, right. And it's when you and I mean, when you're a kid, you're you're building your identity constantly. But when you don't see yourself anywhere you have to kind of make a meal of the scraps in a way where you're like, oh, you're always decoding. And so you're creating this, um, like you said, it's a very visual language, a very pop culture related language or or the stimuli around you. And it builds and builds. So we're blaming Wizard of Oz, specifically the Wicked Witch. Yeah. Okay. That's culprit number one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Who's next on the docket? So next is The Bold and the Beautiful. Oh, the the soap opera? The CBS soap opera. (gasps) So there was a part of my childhood where my mom was taking care of us full time, single parent household, Mm -hmm. just me, my mom and my sister. And my mom was a big soap opera fan. And The Bold and the Beautiful would come on at like 1.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) Of course. And my mom, I think I must have been around four. And obviously my mom and my sister is a year and a half younger than me. Mm -hmm. Although maybe this was also, this could have been, maybe this was like between four and six years old. Okay. And it was ongoing. Okay. But obviously like when I was in kindergarten and in school, like it would be in the summer or whatever, you know, when I'm home from school. Right. Just binging on TV. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But basically, so like, obviously my mom would not allow us to watch that (laughs) at that age. Sure. And I don't even know what made me and my sister want to watch it although I think it was more me and my sister was tagging along. But the way that our apartment was set up was, so we had our living room, there's the TV, the sofa's facing the TV. And next to the sofa, there's like a little hallway. So there's a wall. Mm -hmm. And so I could be in the hallway and see the TV from the hallway, (laughs) but my mom sitting on the sofa could not see me. Stop it. So you were hiding in the hallway? Yeah. So me and my sister, (laughs) we would gather our blankets and pillows to get comfortable. And we would sit in the hallway and watch the bold and the beautiful from this angle, like hiding in this little hallway in our apartment. So from that hallway, I was ushered into this ridiculous (laughs) world of these hypersexualized women and men and the drama, the backstabbing, the poisoning, the murder attempts, all of it. Now, can you fill me in? Because I, of course, I'm aware of Bold and the Beautiful, but as a child, we were not a soap opera watching family. Right. So in the, in sort of the, my memories, they combine a bit, like as the world turns. Right. General Hospital, I assume, takes place at a hospital. But what's the basic gist of Bold and the Beautiful? The basic gist, so most soap operas are set in sort of fictional towns. Like All My Children is set in Pine Valley. Uh, <laughs> what an, you're a diehard. Okay. I was for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And even throughout high school, like it was Bold and the Beautiful, Young and the Restless, and As the World Turns for me. 
Usually soap opera fans tend to be loyal to the network. Okay. So you were either a CBS soap person, an ABC soap person, or NBC. And what were you? I was CBS. Okay. So CBS had Bold and the Beautiful, Young and the Restless, and As the World Turns. Great. Bold and the Beautiful, what sort of set it apart from a lot of the other ones was that it was set in LA. A real place. Like, a real a real place. Which is just hilarious because their version of LA is populated by 15 people. Um, there's <laughs> no one. Else. running into yeah. each other there's yeah. no one else in their la <laughs> and it's set in which is also funny it's set in the fashion industry oh, which is funny because la is not a fashion capital right you know what i mean it's not a new york or a paris or a milan but they knew 95 percent of the people watching the show had never been to la yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so it's like so basically, there were two fashion houses. There was Forrester Creations and Spectra. Oh, great. And Forrester was run by the Forrester family. So the Forrester family was Eric Forrester and his wife, Stephanie. Now, Stephanie was the matriarch of the show. Okay. What a great, strong 80s name. Yeah. Stephanie Forrester. And I, I think the actress's name is Susan Flannery. Mm. I could be incorrect, but she's an icon and in real life is like pretty butch lesbian oh great and and stephanie is really fucking butch like even though <laughs> she's part of this like fashion family and she's the matriarch and she has kids and and all of that like she is so butch and she gets progressively more butch as the years go on like at one point she had like a platinum blonde buzz cut oh great and she's like a short stocky woman but she was never explicitly queer in the show no ne okay. never of course never. Yeah. she was actually like it's funny there have been times i didn't pick up on this when i was younger but mm -hmm. re-watching clips over the years like especially so stephanie's arch nemesis is brooke logan who's played by katherine kelly lang who is still on the show today <gasps> How many? What on earth? Yeah, to this day. Okay. And Brooke <laughs> was the sexy blonde bombshell mm -hmm. who was obsessed with Stephanie's son, Ridge. Ridge was the hunk Wait, of the show. Ridge, R I D G E. Yes. Oh, <laughs> take me there. I know. And played by Ron Moss. <laughs> <laughs> so Ridge is Stephanie's son. Mm -hmm. Brooke works at Forrester Creations. Her initial claim to fame is that she invented this special formula for, I don't know if it was like some kind of detergent or product that gets wrinkles out of clothes, like miraculously. That was sort of her claim to fame. Okay. So she's working at Forrester Creations and she's obsessed with Ridge. And for the entire 35 year run of this show, Brooke and Ridge is off and on and off and on and off and on. Like you cannot, I don't, I would be amazed if anyone knows what the exact number <laughs> of breakups and reconciliations there were between these two. And it's the same actors now for almost four decades? Well, um, Stephanie left. Okay. Ridge also left. But Ridge only left like a few years ago. Stephanie as well. Like they were in it for the long haul. Are you still a stan? Are you up to date? No, on no, okay. not at all. I think I stopped watching when I was around 16. Okay. But anyway, so Brooke is obsessed with Ridge. Stephanie fucking hates Brooke. And Brooke eventually like works her way through the family. Like she fucks Mary and marries Ridge. She steals Stephanie's husband, Eric, Ridge's father. Girl. And she gets with Ridge's brother, Thorne. Like she worked her way through the entire family multiple times. Like, Wait, I'm sorry. On a I'm cycle. Sorry. 
Quick question. Did you just say brother named Thor? Thorn. Thorn, even better. <laughs> even better. I know. Oh, thank God. Okay. So, oh yeah. So what I'm getting at, you asked me if Stephanie's queerness like ever was a thing. Yes. But by the way, I think your spinoff podcast is you synopsizing that's <laughs> whatever that is. Um, Bold and the Beautiful, because it is better when you tell it. Thank you. I mean, that would be a dream job, honestly. Networks, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> so what's funny is that not only was was the actress's queerness like never tied to the character of Stephanie like it it was never explored Stephanie was like you know very straight and furthermore what I discovered in later years sort of re-watching clips between Stephanie and Brooke fighting is that whenever Stephanie and Brooke were fighting there was actually a very religious dimension to it Stephanie is like this Christian woman and she's always sort of attacking Brooke for just her sexuality. I mean, for Stephanie, Brooke is a total slut whore. And Stephanie is always standing on this moral ground. Like there's really this like religious element to Stephanie's character Mm -hmm. that I did not pick up on as a kid. So she was sort of shaming her almost like implicitly for being different or, you know, sexually liberated. Yeah, totally. Totally. And then so Ridge had this other love interest who was also off and on for all of these 35 or 40 years now named Taylor, who was played by this actress named Hunter Tylo. Great, because I was going (laughs) to say Taylor's a disappointment as far as the crazy names, but in walks Hunter Tylo. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Who is, I swear, like, especially at that time, like now she's kind of gone the sort of like Meg Ryan surgery road. Oh, girl. Which is... You know, I won't, I I don't pass judgment on that. Not at all. And I still think she looks fantastic. But in the early 90s, Hunter Tylo is Taylor, like truly one of the most stunningly gorgeous women I've ever seen. And for me, that was like, I mean, between her and Brooke, like, to me, that was like, they really created this completely unrealistic uh-huh. feminine ideal, you know? And so that was, was that what spoke to you? Sort of that archetype of femininity? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And the way that I could see them both use that really differently, you know? So Brooke really used her sexuality. Yeah. You know, like Brooke was truly a seductress. And even like, I mean, she's beautiful too, not necessarily quite as conventionally beautiful as Hunter, but Brooke is like body. You know what I mean? She is sex. Yeah. And like, she is totally selling that. And she gets what she wants by really, you know, seducing these men. Whereas Taylor, because she's so beautiful, just sort of has men come to her Hmm. and she doesn't have to work too hard for it, you know, but it's there and it's powerful in its own way. But it's it's this thing that sort of radiates from her, whereas Brooke, it's something that she really brings to the table. And especially at 16, like what an age for that to hit when you're really, I think, coming into your own as as an adult. Oh, no. I mean, but for me, like, I was feeling the sexual impulse, like, really young. You know, like, when I was five in the hallway, like, watching that. Like, of co- okay, of course. I'm thinking, you stopped watching when you were 16, but this started when yeah. you... Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I was, like, I mean, I know it's not every kid, but I know there are lots of kids where... The, 
I don't know what to call us, but like the horny kids, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know what it was, but like some of us were feeling it really young. Right. And watching Brooke like move on Ridge or those scenes, there was never any explicit sex scenes, uh-huh. but like just seeing Brooke in bed with like a shirtless muscular ridge. Yeah. What I mean, it really did something for me, like even at that age. Yeah, no, I don't doubt it. It's funny because I've talked about this on the show before, but for me, it was a moment in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where Christian Slater is laying in a pile of dead leaves and his vest is kind of open. And I was five or six, but something about that felt primal. Yeah. And I heard another one of your guests talk about like Gaston being shirtless and Beauty and the Beast and like his hairy chest. Listen, Gaston comes up on the show like every oh, other episode. Yeah, it's not surprising. <laughs> but I think in a in a weird way, though, watching The Bold and the Beautiful so young, mm-hmm. like it really re- genuinely, to the, to the extent that I think I'm still working through it, like it really warped my idea of sex and femininity right. and what all of that meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that, I don't know, it, it made sex out to be this like incredible, incredibly, I don't know what the word is, but just this like otherworldly experience, but that was still very tied to this sort of glamour, you know, like Mm -hmm. the lighting was always beautiful. Like this was not ugly sex, you know, like this was like- Everyone had silk sheets. Yeah. (laughs) And it seemed like, and you know what? And I think the women on the show, like were always about pleasing the man like there uh, even though there was a lot of empowerment in their sexuality like at the end of the day like these were very subservient yeah especially at the time this would have been in the 80s right like um early 90s early 90s yeah and so yeah i think that like it's it just gave me very unrealistic expectations about sexuality sexual power femininity yes how to use that and i think that for me at the time it looked like they were really empowered, especially Brooke in particular. Uh-huh. And I, I would maintain that there's there's some empowerment in the way that Brooke moves through L.A. <laughs> but I think there's another part of it where Brooke clearly lacks some kind of self-respect. Sure. It is. It's funny, hey, how you like you described it very much as something that gave you a path, kind of empowered you or gave you an idea of what you could become. But then also you... As you get older, you have to realize like, oh, a lot of that is not, I've got to peel those parts away or yeah, cut that off. Exactly. Yeah, for me, a lot of my my dating image was from Dawson's Creek, <laughs> which, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> those kids get it wrong. I mean, that made me queer in a different way. Oh my God, that song made me queer. The dad. The d- yeah, yeah. Hang on. That was Dawson's dad, right? Dawson's dad. Dawson's... Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, because, da- I mean, Dawson famously, I think, takes the most hits for that show. There's a really great meme gif of him ugly crying. But his dad was a smoke show. His dad was, like, a cover of, like, Men's Health Come to Life. I think I remember... <laughs> this memory is coming back yeah. strong now. But I think that, like, you know, like, Ridge on The Bold yes, and the Beautiful to go back to so this, like, alpha male, mm-hmm. you know, like super hunky, incredibly square jawline, Mm -hmm. but like dumb as a wall. Like not only (laughs) the character, but the actor as well. Like, I mean, but hot, you know? And, And I was always, I don't know. I was just always so drawn to that kind of man. Like, I think it's starting to shift for me now. Like, I think I'm, I'm finding myself drawn to softer men now, Uh but for so long, like in my life, I've just been drawn to like the alpha male asshole. 
you know, and like thinking that like my role as a woman is to like nab him, like seduce him, nab him, get my claws into him. And then let him have his way with me. Right. Like that's the trade-off, which is especially tricky when you're already identifying with the villains as a queer person through that queer decoding because you don't want to take all their tactics, right? Right. Exactly. You got to be careful. You got to take the the, uh, iconic entrances, take the fantastic outfits and leave all the bullshit relationship stuff on the side. Exactly. (laughs) But there were like, it was, I have a friend who still watches it, (sighs) like still watches The Bold and the Beautiful and is so invested in it. Now I feel like I need to get on that train. So I'm going to watch Wizard of Oz and Bold, I mean, Bold and the Beautiful sounds like a Send you a clip to like a great Stephanie and Brooke cat fight. Yes, please. Because it's hard to find like full episodes and especially at the time and, and still now the ones I mean, you know, this soap opera is is dead in the water. Like it is dying out. Mm. Like they're almost all gone. Oh. I think the only ones that are left are basically the bold and the beautiful and young and the restless and like maybe one other, but it it died. This is the call to action that we should be listening to. Not global warming, not, you know, the endangered <laughs> seal Save cup the or whatever. Soap operas. <laughs> Save the soap. But it's too late. We we missed oh. that that culture can't be brought back. No, and it was such right. an you're industry, right. you know, like they there used to I'm sure you remember like there used to be magazines, like yeah. more than one, like multiple magazines devoted to soap operas. Yeah. You know, people, I mean, I would love to see a documentary about like soap opera fans. Like there was, there's an unhealthiness for a lot of them. You know what I oh, mean? Oh like, yeah. A lot of people who would just be home every day and just getting swept up in these stories and living your whole life around that. Like I remember in the summer between grade eight and grade nine, like I was particularly obsessed with As the World Turns in this one particular <laughs> storyline. And like, I mean, I had to fucking watch it every single day. Like I, it was in my veins. Like I was addicted. Cliffhangers everywhere. That's funny because I'm just remembering my aunt when I was a child was obsessed with an actor named Michael Damien. Do you know what soap he was on? No. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to look real fast. I think she had like a sort of embroidered throw on her wall. <laughs> he was on The Young and the Restless. Oh, I wonder who he played. Does it show the character's name? Yes, Danny Romalotti. No, it's I not doesn't a ring bell. a bell. No. Eh. Old news anyway. Okay, so uh, I, I want to talk to you a lot more about soaps, but in the interest of time, we've got to move on to contestant number three. So contestant number three is the movie Evita with Madonna. <laughs> with Madonna? Oh my yes. God. So I was like, I guess nine when it came out. And honestly, like I had no concept of Madonna before this time. My mom loves music, but my mom's not like a diehard fan of a specific performer. Mm-hmm. So it was really more of like a radio listener. Okay. You know, so there was always music, but not really much talk about specific artists and mm-hmm. who they are and what they do. So I really, you know, had no concept of who Madonna was as a person. And I think at that time, like, I mean, I was still into kid stuff. I mean, I at eight years old, I had gotten Jagged Little Pill, Alanis Morissette, which like yes. was a big thing in my life. So Evita was sort of what came next. So I think it was part of this moving away from more childish interests into more like grown up stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used to watch Entertainment Tonight when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And there was like a little capsule on like Evita, you know, like it's coming to theaters. There was like this little behind the scenes feature that they were doing. And I vividly remember that one of the scenes that was shown is from a song called Rainbow High. Mm-hmm. I know Evita 
very well. Oh, you do? Okay, amazing. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> so Evita's getting ready to like tour Europe and, you know, do this political tour and is getting glammed up for it. And there's the shot of Madonna that Entertainment Tonight showed where they're playing this song, which is such a gay song. Yes, but Rainbow is in the title. Yeah, kinda. yeah. <laughs> and she's sitting in this room just surrounded by shoes. And... I don't know. I was just so drawn to what I was seeing. And I told my mom, like, I want to see Evita. Like, you have to take me to see Evita. (laughs) So my mom took me to see it. Uh And I really didn't understand, like, what was going on in the movie. Yeah. But I loved the songs. And I just, like, fell completely in love with this woman. You know, like, again, I didn't know it was Madonna. I didn't know what or who Madonna was. Uh But the woman that I was seeing on the screen was speaking directly to my soul. Like, much in the same way that the, the witch spoke to me when I was you know, a year and a half. Oh, yeah. And there's a way, because that's a highly political story, of course, but as a child, because I saw it too in theaters, you don't, that all can kind of go past you and yeah. you just see Madonna being a boss Yes, with slicked back hair all the time and gowns. Exactly. And the clothes in that movie are phenomenal. Oh, God. And the hand gestures, you know yeah, what I mean? The very arms. strong arms. Listen, I will, I will tell you, I had a teacher in music theater school. Strong arms get you very far on stage. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, I know this is a very controversial opinion, but I do think that she did it better than Patty. I think Patty's Evita is borderline insufferable. <laughs> and I love Patty. I love uh-huh. Patty. Don't get me wrong. Of course. So first, like, I just became obsessed with Evita, like the musical and the figure. Mm-hmm. I remember for my birthday party that year, my childhood best friend at the time, like, got me the double cassette soundtrack. Yes. I literally wore that soundtrack out and then soundtrack one day of the movie with Madonna yeah exactly yeah, okay and one day I went to my mom and I was just like does Madonna have any other albums <laughs> and then that just like opened up this entire world to me I love that you you discovered Madonna through Evita I know not many people can say that no because that's funny because I you like even her character that was who Madonna was first to you yes exactly because yeah, even yeah. before I I became obsessed because I did end up becoming completely obsessed with Madonna. Oh, sure. And that was, you know, that was really where my queer education started. You know, like being a fan of hers led me to fashion, led me to cinema and all the artists that influenced her. Like that was really the beginning of the education. Mm -hmm. But before that, like I was really just obsessed with the movie, Evita, the soundtrack and Evita herself. Like I remember doing a couple of like oral presentations in the fourth or fifth grade on Evita. (laughs) Then I started doing all my oral presentations on Madonna. (laughs) I remember like renting from the video store, this VHS of Madonna's girly show concert. Yeah. And I had like an old TV and VCR in my room when I was a kid and I watched that and I remember feeling so scandalized because like her dancers are naked basically Mm -hmm. there's this giant orgy scene in Deeper and Deeper where like girls are on girls guys are on guys everyone's on each other and I really felt like oh my god like I should not be watching this yeah yeah how old were you again? I think I was like at that point I was 10 watching the girly show like still way too young to be watching that (laughs) but it was all done covertly you know my mom didn't know Yeah, like 
didn't know that that would be in a Madonna concert. Didn't know. Which is, it's funny too, because I come from a very Catholic Christian upbringing. And so we were not allowed to listen to Madonna, but we got a pass to go to this movie because it was music theater and it had sort of a historical precedent. Right. So I think like you, if I think about it, I discovered Madonna through Evita. Oh my God. This is amazing. (laughs) Strong arms. Strong arms. (laughs) Amazing wardrobe. Yes. And Antonio Banderas as a hot Che Guevara. I know. Yeah. And I mean, the movie was relatively well received at the time and and did relatively well. Box Office Wife and the soundtrack was a big seller. But I really do think that that movie doesn't get enough recognition. Like, it's not perfect, obviously, but I don't know. There's really nothing like it. You know, like Alan Parker really tried to create something that felt very realistic. Mm -hmm. You know, like from the sets and the locations and everything, like really creating this completely true to life world. But with these songs, like it's bizarre. But to me, it's like bizarre in the most grandiose way. Like, I think it's really special. And for a story like that, like you got to go big or go home. Exactly. it's funny because some people like, you know, don't just can't take Madonna as an actress. But in Dick Tracy, in A League of Their Own, she's always a standout. Well, she definitely does much better in supporting roles. Yeah, Yeah. Definitely. But I do think that she really came through with Evita. I think you know, so too. And it is a bizarre movie. Like it's, it, there is no talking. <laughs> I remember at the time, like hearing that, like there were a few lines of spoken dialogue. There's not, there's not a single word. of spoken Not dialogue. a single line. No, not a single line. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I, I wish more people would revisit it because I think that it's really worth watching. Oh yeah. I think so. T- I mean, I have a foggy memory of it, but it's a positive memory. Yeah. I'm here for it. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's recap. Yeah. So we have th- three, three big things that made you queer. We've got the Wicked Witch yeah. and her big entrance. We've got the bold and the beautiful, but specifically those two characters. Yeah. Brooke and Taylor. Brooke and Taylor. Great. And then number three, we have Evita starring Madonna. Yeah. I think those are really like, those are like these sort of signposts in my childhood. You've done some great construction. You've really taken us through like different ages. I think this is a strong narrative sweep. (laughs) So I'm pleased and I'm angry with you. uh, And I also point the finger of blame. At all of them. At all of them. Now, Trana, before I let you go, and I really don't want to, do you want to play a game? Of course. Oh, thank God. (laughs) This game is called Queer, Queerer, Queerist. Ready? Okay, so you think you're hot? So you think you're queer? Well, we want to know what is the queerest thing here. Queer. Queerer. Queerest. Oh, I know. Oh, as a a super fan, uh, I die. Oh, I know. So in case you're a first-time listener, uh, in this game, Trana is tasked with putting three things in order from least queer to most queer and telling us why. Any questions? Nope. Great. I just hope they're good. I hope they're good. Your answers are my my things. Your things. Oh, oh <laughs> I see. <laughs> Who's okay? Here, I'll try my best. Number one, condiments delivered via hand pump. Okay. <laughs> Number two, anana, the telefrancais pineapple. Oh my god. Okay. Are you familiar? I am. Yeah, vaguely. This is very CanCon, folks. Yes. Yes. Okay. And number three, clothing in the shape of an animal, such as a Mariah Carey butterfly top. 
Oh, oh my. So just to recap, to buy you some time, condiments delivered via hand pump, uh, ananas from Telefrancais, <laughs> and clothing in the shape of an animal such as a butterfly. Least to most queer and why? Okay, so first the least queer would be anana. Okay. My memory of them is quite vague. I wish I had more to go on. I can sort of see it. I can kind of get a semblance of what they look like. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But even though I grew up in Quebec, like I grew up in a suburb that was very Anglophone. So I was like very cut off from Quebec culture. Mm. So maybe Anana is more queer than I'm giving them credit for. But <laughs> this is just strictly based on my lack of knowledge on Anana. They didn't really resonate with you as a queer beacon. Exactly. There okay. was another French Quebec TV sort of was Anana a cartoon or like a puppet? Anana was a weird little puppet with uh, big eyes, um, very shrieky kind of voice. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there was another Quebec puppet named uh, BB who was like a troll with neon green hair. Ooh. BB was very queer. Okay. Very queer, yeah. Okay. So next, so queerer mm -hmm. would be the condiments in the pumps. <laughs> okay, tell us why. I mean, the hand gestures alone that were required to get out the condiment of your choice. And also the way that very often when you would sort of pump the condiment, sometimes you'd have to like pump and nothing would come out. So you keep pumping and then you get like <laughs> splashed. Then too, exactly too much. Which is like true to things that would happen later on in more private moments. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and also to me, what makes them queer beyond the sort of innuendo-y stuff is just the fucking size of those things. They're like, so big. They're so big. And often like the mustard one would be like a big yellow jug the ketchup would be like a big red jug and like they were just so enormous that they almost had a kind of sensuality to them <laughs> and as a child, like a big gourd you, you know yeah, yeah you had to do sort of a whole body exertion to get anything out so you're like jumping and hammering <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's true okay and then queerest would be clothing in the shape of an animal oh. you mentioned mariah carey's butterfly top which i think is definitely the best example of that thank you i wish i could think of another example i mean christina aguilera also had the butterfly for the versace dress that she wore to the grammys mm -hmm. i guess the butterfly shape really lends itself to like covering the breast area it does and it has this nice sort of cinch waist yes, that i think a lot exactly. of people want you yes. don't see a lot of like elephant shaped tops like <laughs> exactly <laughs> warthog but <laughs> the Mariah one especially was like so decked out and sparkly and like I think what I love about it and what I think makes it super queer is just like it was a way to almost be topless without being topless because it left so little to the imagination truly and I think as queer people well maybe not all of us but many of us really want to show off our bodies mm -hmm. but we don't want to get banned from Instagram or we don't want to be you know banned from the red carpet at an award show so I love anything Thing that sort of allows your sort of like <laughs> inner sluttiness to be expressed while still actually technically being covered up. Absolutely. Because her boobs totally... were just full on out there. There was just a tip of little little wing in front of exactly. the Exactly. And I, I love that. Like I love Lil' Kim when she was Lil' at Kim the had MTV. the starfish. Yeah, she had that little like sort of pasty basically. I think it was a starfish shape. So that counts as an animal type. Right. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, that counts as a top. A pasty a, yeah. counts as a top for sure. In the Lil Kim collection, that's yeah. a, that's a coat. But I love it, and I mean, even the you know, even Jennifer Lopez's green dress, like yes. it was also this way of being naked without being naked, which Cher really invented. You know, oh, one hundred percent. Are we thinking like yeah. the Turn Back Time video? No, even before that, like in the seventies on the Sunny and Cher show, like she was always wearing these like completely sheer things that were like cut out like on the sides and like but still somehow like so elegant yeah i don't think anyone else managed to like mariah's butterfly top i would not call elegant but Cher managed to sort of do these nude illusion looks while still looking like extremely elegant and so confident. Yeah, like, I feel like, actually, she was ready to march on stage naked. And some producer was like, oh, my God. And then just grabbed, like, a sheer yeah. uh, neckerchief and threw it on exactly. her body. And exactly. she made it iconic. Completely. So, like, I feel like, yeah, that's what makes it queerest to me is that, like, it's this way of being nude and showing off your body, but without actually being naked. Queer sluts. So yes. just to recap, uh, least queer was Anana. Perhaps <laughs> just because of the fog of time if yeah. you were to revisit maybe queer queerer condiments delivered via hand pump <laughs> and queerest animal shaped tops like the iconic butterfly yes okay so your score let me just check you got a 100 percent. but how did i do because i think you were testing me you got a 95 percent. okay give yeah. me room to grow <laughs> <laughs> Don't put me in a small pot. <laughs> I wish I could remember, though, there were some, s- listening to your other episodes, there were some items on your list that, like, had me laughing out loud. <laughs> Thank you. And these these were great, and I, I'm, I'm just honored that I got to play this game. Well, listen, you know what? I'm, I'll keep cooking them, and when we have you back for the 10th anniversary, you yes. just wait. Amazing. I can't wait. So, Trenna Winter, unfortunately, the time has come and I have to release you back into the wild. Back to LA. Back to the LA of the Bold and the Beautiful. Back to the 15 person populated (laughs) LA. Um, But before you go, is there anything you want to plug? Just my podcast, Chosen Family, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. What about that new album? I'm gonna oh my, plug oh my that. god. <laughs> okay. Oh my Get god. That PR girl. I know. I'm so like I'm so off my P- I'm so <laughs> sick of like pushing shit all the time. I know. Um, but yes, I mean truly my album is like the thing that I'm the most proud of in my entire life. It's gorgeous. Thank you. And it's streaming on Spotify and Apple Music and wherever else people stream things. It's called Safe from Your Affection. Yeah, I hope people listen to it. Yeah, check it out. It's stunning. There's beautiful original work, there's gorgeous just covers it's in english it's in french what more do you want in an album people <laughs> and the cover photo is luscious thank you inspired by barbara streisand oh please obviously now barbara streisand's inspired by you <laughs> so thank you so much this was a true delight i cannot thank you enough and i was pretty queer when this conversation started and you trena winter had made me even queerer That's what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're doing a bang up job. Thank you so much. Oh my God. This was like a dream come true. Honestly, (laughs) like I don't want it to end. Honestly, this was the best. I'm a real fan of yours. So thank thank you. you, Trina. I'm a real fan of yours too. Honestly, stop. Okay, that is our show. We really want to hear from you. You can send us pretty much anything. Coming out stories, tell us what made you queer. Tell us what didn't make you queer. Tell us what you're working on or working with. 
We want to know. That's as always, you made me queer at gmail.com. Send your letters and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It matters to us, it matters to me. It's real easy to do. And then there is internet proof of who you stand. And that is it for this week. Please be good to yourself this weekend. Be safe. Take the time that you need to recharge. And we will see you next week. So, cue credits. You've Made Me Queer is created, produced, and edited by me, Trevor Campbell. Our theme song is by Critty. For more from music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our website is youmakemequeer.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at youmakemequeer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every Thursday. And from the bottom of my big bent heart, thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.